All right, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And if you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers would be happy to get one into your hands. Revelation chapter 3, new chapter for us. It's been several weeks since we've been in it. Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. We're studying the book of Revelation, of course, under the theme of hold fast. Hold fast, Jesus said, what you have until I come. Hold fast until I come. It's one of the main reasons for the book of Revelation, that we would persevere and keep the faith no matter what. That we would persevere and keep the faith and hold fast in the midst of our present tribulation that ebbs and flows in our lives. And that certainly we would keep the faith, more pointedly, in the future tribulation to come that precedes the return of Jesus. Hold fast. Can't emphasize it enough and we'll continue to do so all the way through. And chapters 2 and 3 really center on that theme with seven messages written to seven first century churches. Some of them good as we found, some of them bad, and some of them a, a mixture, good and bad. It's good church, bad church, and it's back and forth, and they mix it up as Jesus conveys these messages to these particular first century churches. But as you've heard me say before, it's not just for them. These messages from Jesus are not just for them. This isn't just a history lesson. Because every single message ends with the same exhortation. Look at verse 6. Every single one ends with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, what was written to one is intended for all. If you can hear, Jesus says, if you can understand, this is for you. This is for us. And this week, we turn our attention to the church in Sardis. Sardis, located about 50 miles uh, east of Smyrna, as you can see there, northeast of Ephesus. Sardis sat on a high mountain, catch this, about 1,500 feet above the valley below. In fact, uh, all but the south side of the mountain was surrounded by a nearly perpendicular rock face, all but the south side, if you can imagine it. We don't have a picture of it because uh, today that mountain is about a third of the size after uh, earthquakes and erosions over the centuries. It's about a third of the size of what it used to be. But back in the heyday, there was this, per this sheer rock face on all three sides, except for the south side that had a slope going up to it. It was security at its best. At its best. And it led to complacency at its worst. Even for the church. You follow along, verse 1. Still speaking to the Apostle John, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, the angel referring to the pastor representing the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him, and Jesus is referring to himself, the words of him, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits referring to the all-knowing Holy Spirit, as we saw back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And the seven stars referring to the pastors to whom he is writing and the churches that they rep represent. Also from chapter 1, verse 20. It's Jesus' way of saying, nothing escapes me. Nothing. In the one hand, I have the 
power and presence of the Holy Spirit at my disposal. And in the other hand, I have the churches and the church in general. I, I have it all. Which is why he can say in the second part of verse 1, I know your works. Nothing escapes him. I know your works. Works probably referring to the same kind of works as at Thyatira, as we saw back in chapter 2. Works like love and faith and service and endurance. Those are the ones that Jesus highlighted there. Not meant to be a comprehensive list of the work of ministry, but certainly representative of it. I know your works, Jesus said. I know them. I see them. And it's not good. You have the reputation, he goes on. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I, I got to tell you, as I was preparing this message all week long, I just kept saying to myself, sitting at my desk, oh God, may it never be so of us. Oh God, may these things never be true of us. Oh Lord, may you never say this or see this in us. I trust that you'll be thinking the same thing with the Lord, even as I speak. Both of your own life and of our church. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. They were lacking. Lacking. Remember then what you received and heard. Referring to all that they had been taught. God's way of living and God's way of ministering. Remember it, he says. Keep it. Keep such truth. And repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Let's stop there. They were dead. A bad church for sure. And a condition worth looking at because no church is exempt. No church is immune from this kind of a problem. And it is a problem with a capital P. With consequences, solutions, and rewards. We're going to see all four of these things just in these six verses. Problem, consequences, solution, and rewards. And it starts with this. A bad church lacks true spiritual life. That's the problem. A bad church lacks true spiritual life. Last three words of verse 1. You are dead. You see it? Spiritually dead. Lifeless. There's no passion. Think about it. You've been there. You, you've seen it. There's no passion. There's no compulsion. There's no burden. There's no nothing. The Spirit has left the building. Jesus no longer attends. There's no power. There's no conviction. There's no faith. And there's no prayer. In a dead church, it's just a bunch of people playing house. House. And mind you, size has nothing to do with it. You know, we tend to think of Little churches is dead and big churches is alive. We just, we just tend to go there. It's, it's part of our flesh, our wiring. 
Size has absolutely nothing to do with it. Just because a church is big doesn't mean it's alive. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's dead. Some of the biggest churches in the world are dead corpses. Hollow corpses. The question is whether Jesus is present. Big or small. Is Jesus present where the two or three or the two or three thousand are gathered? The question is whether the church is full of the Spirit controlled and moved and led by him. And the question is whether they're fighting the good fight or just coasting along, whether they're following Jesus or faking it. Size has nothing to do with it. Activity has nothing to do with it. And certainly reputation has nothing to do with true spiritual life. Second part of verse 1. You have the reputation of being alive. That is, people think you're alive. People talk about it. You're the buzz of the town. But you are dead. If you ever wondered, if you ever needed a reminder, like, what matters most? What people think or what Jesus thinks? This would be exhibit A. It's what Jesus thinks. It's not even what you think in your life. It's what Jesus thinks. You have the reputation, but you're dead. In other words, they were all show and no substance. A bad church lacks true spiritual life when they're all show and no substance. You know, they look good to people on the outside, but there's nothing on the inside, nothing uh, of of spiritual substance. They're, They're all form and no function. They do what they do to impress the crowd instead of lead them in worship. They do what they do to draw a crowd instead of disciple them. They do what they do to deceive a crowd instead of shepherd them. God help us. This land in which we live, this world in which we are. Does that mean every church with a good reputation is all show and no substance? Not at all. Not at all. It depends on what they teach, doesn't it? It depends on how they preach. I mean, do they teach the whole counsel of God or just the nice parts? You know, the the easy parts. uh, The things that are palatable to us. uh, The things that go down easy. Is, is that it? I mean, do they, do they preach heaven, love, and blessing without hell, wrath, and, and suffering? If so, they're all show. Sometimes people will ask me, how, how do I know when it's time to leave my church? Man, here's, here's a few things. Is it all show and no substance? Do do they only preach the easy things? Do do they talk about salvation but not sanctification, that is, growing in godliness and holiness? Do Do they only talk about grace but not truth? Is it all freedom but not obedience? How about sin? Do they call sin sin or do they try to excuse it as a syndrome? Do they address the culture around them or do they accommodate it or or even ignore it? Sometimes ignoring it in the, the, to be spiritual. Well, we're above that. Prophets weren't above that. They addressed the culture. Jesus even did so. The apostles did so. 
Do they address the culture? Do they accommodate it? Do they speak the truth or do they avoid it? Is God the center or is the pastor? Is Jesus exalted or is it the worship leader? Listen, if it's the latter of those things, then the church is all show and no substance. Regardless of the reputation. That's one characteristic of a church that lacks true spiritual life. A second is that their ministry is lacking. A bad church lacks true spiritual life when their ministry is lacking. Look at the second part of verse 2 in that sense. I have not found your works, Jesus says, complete in the sight of my God. Referring to their works of ministry. They were incomplete. They were insufficient. They weren't fulfilling their work of ministry. Becky and I were at a church like this when we were first married. We didn't know it because it's all we knew. The, the doctrine was sound, and as we look back, we praise God for that, but the, the worship was dead. The ministries existed, you know, they had children's and students and adult-type ministries. Like, the ministries existed, but the fruit didn't. Decisions and baptisms were few and far between, and, and it wasn't a small church. It was a church of six or 700 people, and yet the, the baptisms and the decisions for Christ were few and far between, and if they did happen, it was only kids, never adults, rarely adults. Like life change was scarce. Impact was rare. And the ministry was lacking. That's not to say that any church is perfect. That's for sure. Or that every church can do everything. Like God gifts some churches to do some things more than others. Vice versa, other churches to do some things more than. It's not to say that every church can do everything, but that every church needs to do the main things. The main things. And every church need to, needs to fulfill their ministry, needs to complete their works in the sight of God. Otherwise, their ministry is lacking, and so is their life. That's the second characteristic that Jesus identifies here of a dead church. Their ministry is lacking. And then third is that their people are sinful. People are sinful. The, the bad news gets worse here for a while before the good news comes. A bad church lacks true spiritual life when their people are sinful. And because their people are sinful... It lacks true spiritual life because their people are sinful. That's the implication of verse 4. Skip down to that just for a second. After saying you're dead, he says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, a few people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You have a few who haven't tainted themselves with, with ongoing sin, stained themselves with, with unrepentant sin, but most have. That's the implication. Most have. Most of the people in the church of Sardis were sinful and therefore the church as a whole was largely dead, lacking true spiritual life. And here's the thing. Just like the wages of sin is death for individuals, the wages of sin is death for a church. Make no mistake. In fact, nothing kills it faster. 
And because sin grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit, sin clouds our decisions and, and, and our judgment and decision making. Sin impedes our fellowship with one another and the sweetness thereof. And, and sin undermines our motivation. You, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> when, when you're in sin, you haven't come clean before the Lord. You don't want to have anything to do with the things of God. You don't want to have anything to, to do with the church. You don't want the conviction that comes with it. Nothing. It undermines our motivation. It undermines our works. Whether it's the sin of a bad attitude, the sin of smug pride, or the sin of outright laziness. Whatever the form, it's a killer. It's a killer in our lives individually, and it's a killer in churches. And we need to be ever vigilant against us. We're not immune. We're not immune. We need to be ever vigilant against it in our own lives. And we need to be ever vigilant against us, against it in our church life. That said, I'm not talking about repentant sin. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about repentant sin. Sin for which you've asked forgiveness. Sin that you are fighting. Sin that you hate with every fiber of your being. I mean, I have sin like that constantly. I do. Sin for which I have to constantly repent. And I do that as well. I'm talking about unrepentant sin in a church. I'm talking about unconfessed and ongoing sin. Whether it's the sin of doing something outright wrong or it's the sin of not doing something right. Oh, there's one. Both are sinful, whether it's doing something wrong or not doing something right, like failing to serve, failing to tithe, failing to love, love one another genuinely, failing to pray, and fervently at that. Failure to do what's right is just as sinful as doing what's wrong. And here's the thing, to the extent that it characterizes us, we're dead. To the extent that sin characterizes us is the extent to which we're dead. We quench the spirit and we lack true spiritual life. That's the problem that Jesus identifies here. For those who have ears to hear. Next are the consequences. And they're serious. They're serious. The consequences are grave. A bad church lacks true spiritual life and the consequences are grave, like the fact that everything is at risk. He identifies two of them, Jesus does here. Two consequences. Everything is at, at risk. That's the first. Like even what's healthy. This is, this is a light bulb moment, I think, for many. Even what's healthy is at risk in a dying church that lacks true spiritual life. Look at what Jesus says in verse 2 again. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. It wasn't as if everything in the church was dead. Everybody. I mean, there were still pockets of faith on the sinking ship. But without an infusion of life, they too were doomed. Because you, you can't hold out forever in situations like that. You can only gasp for air so long. You can't fight uphill forever. Like, it, it, think of it this way. If a few bad apples can spoil the whole bunch, how much more will the whole bunch spoil the few? 
Sometimes people will say, well, I feel, I feel called to stay in this church. I know it's dead. I know it's dying, but I feel, I feel called to stay. You may very well feel called to stay, and if so, you should. But you should also realize that there's a crossover point where you are at risk, where the good that you can do is exceeded by the bad that will influence you. It's true. Death begets death in a church. Even worse is the opposition a dead church faces from none other than Jesus himself. Judgment awaits. That's the second grave consequence. Everything's at risk. Everything's at risk. Even the things that are still healthy and have a measure of health. And second, judgment awaits. Second part of verse 3 again. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Did, you. did you catch those last five words? I will come against you. I'll come like a thief and you won't, you won't even know the hour that I will come against you. What, what hour I will oppose you and judge you. But you better believe it's coming, he says. And I think that there's both a near-term judgment that's implied here and an end times, a long-term judgment that's implied here. Both and. Near term, because even if they did wake up, they wouldn't know the hour of Jesus' return. No one knows but the Father, Matthew 24, 36. And so Jesus must be referring to his judgment and opposition now in the midst of their present deadness, in the midst of their present darkness. But I also think that there's an end times judgment in view. When Jesus returns at the end of this age to judge the living and the dead, as the Bible says, 1 Timothy 4.1, 2 Timothy 4.1, excuse me. I think that there's an end times judgment in view here because he uses the same metaphor, that of a thief. Did you notice that word? A thief that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe his second coming. Like 1 Thessalonians 5.2, where it says that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. That is unexpected and unwanted. That's the gist. That's the idea of the whole thief metaphor. That, that he will come and he will be unexpected and thoroughly unwanted. Think of it. Think of it. For those who are spiritually dead, dead, the second coming of Jesus will be exactly that. Unexpected and unwanted. Just like a thief in their home in the middle of the night. Unexpected because they're not expecting him. And unwanted because they don't want to get ripped off. They don't want to suffer. And the same is true when it comes to Jesus. For those who are spiritually dead, he's unexpected because they won't be looking for him. They'll be going about the things of their life, obsessed and focused on the things at this level, and completely oblivious to the things above. He'll be unexpected and he'll be unwanted because his coming meets judgment for them. But praise God for those who are spiritually alive. And for us, the coming of Jesus means victory. The coming of Jesus means blessing. The coming of Jesus means relief. The, the fight is over. The victory is won. He's here. Our salvation is completely consummated and completely fulfilled. And our bodies are completely glorified. How good is that? No wonder, he says, be watchful. No wonder, 
We yearn for him. No wonder it says at the end of the book of Revelation, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For those who are spiritually alive, it's awesome. It's expected and wanted. But for those who are dead, it's unexpected and it's unwanted because judgment awaits. Two grave consequences for a dead church. Fortunately, there's a solution. Because God's just like that, isn't he? Gracious, full of grace, and merciful through and through. Like he's that gracious. And though the solution may not be easy, it is simple. The solution is simple. Consisting here of five commands straight from the mouth of Jesus. The first, in his words, is wake up. Wake up. First two words of verse 2. Wake up, Jesus says. As in, snap out of it. Snap out of your sin-induced stupor. Am I speaking to anybody? Snap out, if that's you, snap out of your sin-induced stupor. Snap out and wake up to your casual lethargy about the things of God. Your casual lethargy regarding the work of ministry. Wake up, he says. Wake up to the things that you're rationalizing in your life and and the things that you're just flat out ignoring. You have anything like that in your life going on? Wake up to the situation you're in and your complacency in life. Oh, there's one. Complacency. If you, if you won't, Jesus says, if you will not wake up, I will come against you like a thief. It's at this point in the first public reading of this message in Sardis that I have to believe alarm bells started going off. You know, like those obnoxious weather alerts we've been getting recently on our phones. God help us. I got to believe that alarm bells would have been going off in the first public reading of this message there in their church with, with those who were gathered. Because the history of Sardis, which they would have well known... The history of Sardis was a built-in object lesson of the very truth that Jesus was trying to convey here. In fact, I think that's why he used the words, thief, wake up, and come against you. Remember the rock face of the mountain on which the city sat? Three sides, nearly perpendicular? Two times in the course of history, that city fell to invaders due to their lack of vigilance. Two times in the course of, city, course of history, that city fell to invaders due to their rampant complacency, thinking that no one could overtake them, no one can touch them, and they certainly wouldn't try to attack them on the side of the rock face. And so, they didn't even guard those walls. They had walls on the rock side, but they didn't even guard them. The first time was 549 BC, almost 600 years earlier than when John was writing this and Jesus was speaking it, Cyrus the Great was sweeping across the land and coming upon Sardis, one of the men in his army having difficulty. They couldn't break through and from the south side, the, the slow ramp going up, having difficulty. One of their men noticed that a soldier or someone had dropped something over the wall 
on the rock face and the dude climbed over the wall, went down a short piece of it, got his thing that he dropped and went back up and the light bulb went on and so the soldier was like, I'm going to do that. And he climbed up of his own accord the entire 1,500 feet, scaled the wall, snuck around to the gate, opened it up, the armies went in and they were overthrown. All because the city was completely complacent, thinking, we got this, we're untouchable. The second time was 300 years later in 216 B.C., a guy named Lagarus. This time he led 15 men up the ascent. Once again, all because the city fell asleep on the job, thinking they were untouchable. So with a built-in object lesson, Jesus told the church, loved ones, you're in the same situation. You're in the exact same situation. You're asleep at your post and you're going to get it. You're not half as secure as you think you are, and you better wake up. How about you? Any, any complacency in your life? Any lifelessness? Any stupor? Laziness? Lack of discipline? I think that pretty much covers us all certainly covers me. Whatever it is, wake up. It may not be easy, but it really is that simple. Wake up. Second, and more quickly, bulk up. Wake up and bulk up. Getting a little cute here. Verse 2 again. Wake up, Jesus says, and strengthen what remains. As in, identify what's healthy in your life and bulk up. So often we only focus on our weaknesses to, to, to somehow bring those things up to snuff. And in the meantime, we let our strengths decay and, and atrophy. And Jesus is like, listen, don't, don't do that. Yes, you have the weaknesses over here. You're dead. You're dead. But, but there are some pockets of strength. So bulk up with those things. Lest they too become like the others. Identify what's good in your life and give it a vitamin boost. Like throw, throw gasoline on the fire. Identify what's alive in God's eyes and fortify it. Reinforce it. Strengthen what's good and bulk up. If your devotional time these days is rock solid and you're a rock star with it, man, bulk up all the more. Give all the more attention to it. Run with it. If you're witnessing these days, with words and thoughts that you're like, man, where did that come from? Bulk up. Keep on. Third, third solution, simple. Maybe not easy, but simple is wise up. Wise up. As in remember what you know. Look at verse three. Remember then, remember then what you received and Heard, wise up, wise up. Remember what, uh, what you heard regarding the truth of God's word. Go back over it. Remind yourself. Review your notes that you take from time to time. I have a little system for my notes. In fact, I just got through doing this on, on uh, Friday where the notes that I took at the conference we were at a few weeks ago, I went back through those notes. And I have this little system as I go back through, if something jumps out at me that I wrote down, and I wrote it down because it jumped out at me when I heard somebody say it, but if it still jumps out at me, then I'll put a little star next to it. 
And then a few days later, I'll go back to it again and I'll, I'll just look at the stars. And if the stars still impact me, then I'll put a box around the entire statement and I'll record it on my phone to keep it a little bit more accessible because I want to remember it. I want to wise up. And I want to stay up. Whatever your system is, get a system and stick with it so that you remember what God has done. You remember what you've been taught. That's the way to life. Wise up by remembering. Fourth, don't forget it. Don't forget. Did you think I had another upcoming? I tried. Oh, I tried. <laughs> don't forget as in keep it. Keep up doesn't quite work here. If you can be clever, I tell our pastors all the time, if you can be clever and clear, awesome, be both. But if you have to sacrifice one, sacrifice the clever and just be clear for crying out loud. So this is me just being clear, all right? Don't forget, don't forget. As in keep it, keep what you remember, keep what you received. Hang on to it and don't forget it. Here's the thing, don't forget the blessings of righteousness that God has bestowed on your life and don't forget the yuckiness and the consequences of sin. Stay up. That might work. <laughs> Don't forget the blessings of righteousness. You know what I'm talking about? When you're walking in the truth and your communion with Jesus is so sweet and, and, and you're not fearing any shoe dropping as if that's a thing. You, you, there, there's, no, there's complete confidence. You rest in the Lord. We ought, we ought to never forget that when it comes to the, to the solution of dying. And we ought never to forget the consequences of sin, the lack of confidence, the worry in our hearts and minds. We ought to never forget. It's one of the many ways that the Lord keeps us on the straight and narrow or gets us out of the ditch and back on the road. And then last but not least is repent. Repent. It's the fifth explicit solution here that Jesus gives. And it keeps coming up, doesn't it? Repent, repent, repent. As in, keep what you received and heard and repent, Jesus says. That is, confess your sin to God and turn from it. Ask him to forgive you and help you. I don't care if it's the 15th time or the 55th time. Repent. It may not be easy to bend the knee once again and admit before the Lord that you totally screwed up, that you totally succumbed to temptation. Do it. It's the only way to strengthen what remains and prevent your life and our church from dying. It's that simple. And it's a big part of the solution. There's a problem, consequences, solutions, and best of all, there's an amazing reward. The reward is amazing. The reward is amazing. After addressing those who were dead, Jesus says in verse 4, check it out, 
Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They've not become sinful and lifeless. Here it is. And they will walk with me in white. They will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. They're deserving such a reward because of their steadfast devotion. And their steadfast devotion because of the work of grace that God has done and continues to do in their life. They're worthy. And they will walk with me in white. There's four quick rewards here. The first two come from that very phrase. A is eternity with Jesus. That's the first reward of waking up and repenting. It's eternity with Jesus. They will walk with me in white, he says. They will, future tense, future, referring to the age to come when Jesus returns and we will see him and we will be with him face to face for all eternity. We just got through singing about it. One of the many phrases that jumped out at me during our time of worship and reminded me of some of these uh, principles and thoughts in the book of Revelation. And I trust that the same is going to happen to you as we continue to work our way through it. Like we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. How good is that? How amazing of a reward is that? Dwelling with him forever. It's not as though that Jesus is preparing a, a place for us and that when he comes again, he's going to deposit us in that place and that he's going to go off and do something else. No, no, no. He's going to deposit us in that place, the new heavens and the new earth, and he's going to dwell there with us and we with him, with, with, with Jesus for all eternity. Amen. Come on. The second amazing reward is perfect purity. You want to talk about, come quickly, Lord Jesus, perfect purity. They will walk with me in white. It's a metaphor that's used several times in the book of Revelation, indicating perfect purity and perfect righteousness. And that means we will no longer have to struggle for it and fight for it, fighting the good fight of faith, but we will enjoy it for all eternity because it will be a part of us with nothing else to oppose it. Perfect purity. If we hold fast and keep the faith. Third is blessed assurance. Eternity with Jesus. Amazing reward, perfect purity, and blessed assurance. From verse 5, the one who conquers, that is the one who holds fast, perseveres, overcomes the onslaught of culture, the temptation of sin and everything else. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. He reiterates it. Here it is. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Not that there's a risk of being blotted out, mind you, if you're genuinely saved. There is. There isn't. There's, there's no risk of you be, being blotted out if you're genuinely saved. But rather, the point here is that Jesus is explicit to assure us. You say, you say why, why do I need that? Why, why do I need such a, a blessed assurance? Because there's nothing like being in the crucible of of adversity, being crushed in the crucible of adversity and starting to doubt, is there? Some of you are in it right now. Adversity of various sorts, some of it's physical, some of it's emotional, some of it's centered in your family, some of it's in your marriage, some of it's in your work life. 
Some of it's in the personal struggles that you have. And there's nothing like being crushed in the crucible of adversity to, be, to, to, be, to, to bring us to a place of starting to go in this terrible cycle of, oh, does Jesus even know? Does he even know? Does Jesus even care? Does Jesus still love me? Can Jesus even do anything about it? And before we even ask the question, he gives us the answer. He does care. He does know. He does hold us. Because he will never blot our name out of the book of life. We're his forever. Jesus is mine and I am his forever. It's blessed assurance. And if you don't think you need it now, if you don't think it's so blessed now, wait for the crucible. And if we're still alive when the crucible of the tribulation comes, blessed assurance. And then last, the last reward of holding fast is divine affirmation. Eternity with Jesus, perfect purity, blessed assurance, and divine affirmation. Second part of verse 5. I will confess his name. Jesus is still speaking. I will confess his name. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, the one who holds fast. I will confess his name before my Father, Jesus says, and before his angels. It, 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 it goes like this. When we persevere in faith and righteousness, confessing Jesus before men, he will confess us before the Father, God the Father, announcing before the entire host of heaven that we are his and we belong to the family of God. That's the idea of Jesus confessing us before the Father. He's saying, this one's mine, and this one's mine, and this one's mine, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. They're all mine, and they all belong to the same family, your family, God How good is that? How amazing is that? It's like the president of a college reading the names of graduates at graduation. You know, with the, the chancellor sitting there and the, the mucky mucks of the board members arrayed in all of their robes and sitting a little bit elevated and then all of the host of the families out there and the president reads every single name as they come across. Does the reading of the name confer the degree? No, no, no. But it sure does draw attention and affirm that person in the eyes of those who are in charge. And the same thing is going to happen with us in heaven. And even is as we speak. Jesus at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. There's divine affirmation. It's one more amazing reward for the one who conquers. He who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and hold fast. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. You're so good to us. So good that you've given us life to the full and life forever. So good that you've given us a church that is alive and passionate and loving 
and burdened and worshipful. God, may we never, ever take it for granted. You're so good. How blessed we are. God, I pray that you will keep us from sin. I pray that you will keep us from slumber. I pray that you will keep us from complacency. And find us ever so vigilant and always awake.